Hey, it's your Kali. What's up? Warning, 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 warning. You are about to listen to facts, stories, interviews, gossip, and much more fascinating things that will be so stunning, there's a possibility that your mind will blow. This show will start five, four, three, two, one. You will listen to Prisca Lorcas from Latina Rebels blog. A talk on the importance and power of storytelling, writing, and using your voice. Recorded live on March 15, 2017 at the Port Ministries. As part of Pop-Up Youth Radio at Richard Curry Academy and Casa Program. Thank you for coming, everyone. We're about to get started. Also, thank you for tuning in. Today we have, uh, we're at the Port Ministries, uh, 5017 South Hermitage Avenue in Chicago, uh, back of the arts. And we have guest speaker, Prisca Dorcas Mojica Rodriguez from uh, Latina Rebels. You can take it over. <laughs> okay, hi. So I'm going to do a little bit about myself because I talk about storytelling, but all my stories are in first person. And I feel like you need to understand who I am to understand my stories. So it'll be short. Um, I was born in Managua, Nicaragua in a barrio called Chico Pelon. So it's known for its maras. So basically, it's known for having a lot of gang activity. Uh, I went to public school in Nicaragua, which usually means in a lot of our countries that it's um, the poorest of the kids go to public school. And um, so in my school, uh, I remember when glue smelling became a thing, like all the kids were smelling glue, so the teacher was like, no hagan eso, you know, it was like, we're all five-year-old, five-year-old kids being told to not sniff glue, um, but they didn't say that kids sniff glue because that curbs hunger pangs. Um, I remember in first grade, cholera was going around, and the teacher brought in paletas, and I was like, yes, we're gonna get candy, all the kids were like cheering, and like, we were really excited, and she's like, she's like, I'm gonna pass it around, and she's like, no los abran, and then she went to the front and she said, now put it in your mouth really quickly. And we're like, yeah, heck yeah, right? It's a paleta, of course, I'm going to put this in my mouth. And we're all, and she's like, and now don't take it out. Because there's a lot of cholera going around and we don't want you guys getting sick. So you see all these first graders with little paleta sticks just like, well, this isn't fun. <laughs> um, but uh, that's what happens when you're the poorest in your country you learn to survive and those kind of are your lessons you don't really learn anything else uh so we moved to the U.S. out of necessity we went we came on a visitor visa and then overstayed our visa and um I thought we were rich but we moved to the hood it was called uh little Nica or pequeña Nicaragua and so everybody from my country was living there basically so we ate the same food we talked the same way nothing changed and there were so many new immigrants in my barrio that the teacher cut the class. Half of it was taught in Spanish and the other half was taught in English. Um, and I was about to turn nine and they were like, hey, why aren't you? Why don't you know how to read? So I had a learning disability. I was never like a smart kid because I always felt like I was dumb because nobody actually said, hey, you need more help learning how to read. They were just like, oh, she's she's just dumb. And so I grew up thinking I was dumb my entire life. Even when I learned to read late, I always thought, like, I'm not the smart kid. That's cool. But I'm funny. Um, <laughs> so I actually, oh, gosh. So I went, we stayed in the hood. I went to a school, a high school that had 5,000 students. It was all Latinx. So Miami is 73% uh, of the population is Latinx, so Latinos. So I was used to being around Latinos, and I didn't know that there was, like, other cities that didn't have this many Latinos. Uh, and so when I was in high school, uh, I started hearing about college. It was, like, junior year, and I was, like, people are talking about college. But my parents were encouraging college. My parents, like, they're immigrants. They're new immigrants. My mom didn't go to college. My dad um, didn't graduate college. So it was just, like, okay, cool, whatever, college. Um, but then I was, like, 
maybe I'll go to that college, right? That's the college people talk about. So I heard that only the AP kids got help with the applications. So I, I remember I went up to my counselor and I, I had a 2.5 GPA in high school. And I went up to my counselor and I was like, I want to be in AP classes. And he's like, no. So I was like, okay, what do you do in public school if you want to get something done? You go to your mommy. And so I went to my mom and I was like, I was like, okay, let's practice. We're going to go to the school and we're going to tell this man to get me into those AP classes. And she's like, I got it. We're good. I was like, okay. So I went to my counselor, my mom. I had to translate because my mom only spoke Spanish. And so I translated to my teacher. Should I stop? I'll stop. <laughs> A group of kids are coming in for the radio. <laughs> okay. So I was just basically telling a story about, like, how I got to college. Uh, so, yeah, I went up to my counselor and I said, I want to go to AP classes. And he's like, no. So I went home and I was like, okay, mom, we're going to go tell this AP teacher to put me in AP class, this counselor to put me in AP classes. She's like, okay. And so we went to the counselor uh, and she doesn't know any English, so I had to translate. And so I sat in the office and I was like, my mom said to put me in AP classes. And the counselor said, well, I think if we put you in those classes, you're going to fail. Tell your mom that none of them speak English and they're not going to be able to help you with your homework and we don't want you to not pass high school because we put you in classes that were above your level. And so I was like, I, I prepared my mom for this, right? I was like, so I turned to my mom and I also knew that I had to get her riled up, like passionate so she could put me in these AP classes. So I was like, mommy, he said we're stupid because we're immigrants. No ve el potencial de nuestra familia. Like, I was just like, sell it, right? And my mom, I think she likes, like, I don't know. I think it has to do with, like, in my country, there was an embargo when I was born. So the U.S. cut resources to my country. And so, like, there was a lot of starvation and kids were dying everywhere. And so the only people that were allowed to come to our country were, like, these missionaries, these Christian people. And so they came in boats full of food and clothes and toys and so my parents are like okay we're gonna do that christian thing for food and so they converted so my mom has this idea of christian white people specifically christians but white people being like saviors so um and it's not any fault of her own she learned it and uh so here we are in front of this white counselor and the counselor's like no you you shouldn't go and my mom's like pues Tal vez tiene razón. Maybe he's right. And I was like, mommy, we talked at home about this. I told you what to say. She's like, no, I just don't, I don't want you to fail. And I was like, so I turned to the counselor and I said, my mom said to put me in those in AP classes now. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, are you sure? I didn't hear that. I was like, yes. So they put me in these classes, and I ended up going to college because of it. Because <laughs> that's the only reason I had any help with the applications. Um, I went to an HSI, so Hispanic Serving Institution. I didn't know that's what heaven would look like, but it is. Because uh, then I went to an, a white serving institution, so like a normal college like the rest of the colleges in the U.S., right? Uh, and I was like, oh, this is different. But anyways, I went to an HSI. I had 45,000 students. 80-something percent of them are Latinos. And all my professors were Latinos. Um, all, like, you know, the sororities and fraternities, they were all Latinos. I was like, oh, we, have, we can do anything we want. And then I was getting near, like, graduation time, and I started, so I got, a, I got a degree in dance and literature. So, like, you don't get a job in those, really. So I started hearing people talk about going to grad school. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And I, I was sitting in the, at La Mesa with my parents. We were having dinner because I still lived at home for college. And I was like, I'm going to go to grad school. And they're like, <laughs> no, you're not. My mom's like, de aquí no te vas hasta que te cases. And I was like, 
I got to get married then. So I got married. I proposed to somebody I was dating, and we were married. Like in four months after I proposed to him. <laughs> and then I applied to, okay, so then I was like, okay, now I'm married. I'm going to Google how to get into grad school. And I was like, take the GRE. And I was like, okay. And I took the GRE, and I was like, Google how to get into grad school without that stupid exam. And there was a list of schools, and like I'm a first gen, so like I see schools, and I'm like I don't recognize any of them. Like maybe if you put Harvard in front of me, I'd be like, yeah, duh, I know that. But it was like Vanderbilt was one of the schools, and I was like, whatever. I I heard about that in Gossip Girl, <laughs> and I like applications are a lot of money, and putting in the paperwork to get. Um, your vouchers for it is not something you understand as a first gen. So I went in, I was like, I'm going to apply to this one school, and that's it. <laughs> so I applied to it, and I got in, and then I moved to Nashville, and I was like, oh, white people live in the U.S. <laughs> and <laughs> it was very jarring, and I got very angry. I had never experienced racism because Latinos, we we – we do a certain kind of violence to each other. There's a lot of colorism in our culturas. We're very anti-black, very anti-indigenous, but it's horizontal. When you're around white people in a white serving institution, it's very much power structures. Like you won't get hired at a work placement because of the color of your skin, even though the government is paying for you to be there, that kind of stuff. So I got really angry, and I got really woke really fast. And um, from that, I created Latina Rebels, the platform that everybody kind of knows me from. So when people tell you, like, you can't be angry, you know, love Trump's hate, I'm like, no. I got really angry, and I made this thing, and it did a lot of really cool things, and it still continues to do a lot of really cool things. So stay angry. Uh, so I, as I said, I never thought I was smart. I was, I never thought I would get into places. I was just like curiosa. Like I was like, hmm, I hear about college. Sure, why not, right? It wasn't like, duh, I'm going to college or duh, I'm going to get a master's. No, it was like, I have nothing to lose except like a lot of money, but it's just one application, right? Uh, I never thought I was a writer and now I work full time as a writer. So I tell people specifically about writing, I tell people to write. I encourage people. Like, it doesn't matter if you don't think you're a writer, write. Because we have ancestors who have been telling stories before these colleges told us how to write. Because um, writing has been gentrified. And they made rules. And you have to write like this. And he here's grammar police telling you how to exist in your story. But, like, guess what? You become a writer, there's people that get paid to edit your work. So you don't have to actually learn all that they teach you in schools, right? Because I'm not a good writer. I, there's people that get paid to do the checking of my writing. And I understand, I hate when people go into spaces and they're like, well, if you try really hard, you can do anything you set your mind to. Because I think that there's already obstacles that we, like, yeah, you tell that to a really privileged, wealthy white man. And yeah, he probably can, like, because his parent will call somebody who will call somebody and he'll get to the top really quickly. So when you tell students of color or people of color, like, anything you set your mind to, you could do, that's like a lie. <laughs> it's hard out there and it's brutal. But telling our stories changes narratives. Um, I'm a big supporter of blogging. I, so I, I started writing for the Huffington Post. Huffington Post doesn't pay its contributing writers. So I wrote for free for like six months. But because of the access of the Huffington Post, I got to start writing full time. And the only reason the Huffington Post reached out to me was because I used to write hella long IG captions. <laughs> and Tanisha Ramirez um, is the editor at the Huffington Post Latino Voices and she messaged me on Facebook she's like you're a writer girl and I was like no I just get passionate on Instagram <laughs> right and she's like no you're a writer you should write for us and it turned into a career so 
there's that. I'm going to warn you, I do curse. I'm going to read some of my stories for you all and explain like how I got to this place, but I do curse a lot. <laughs> I think it's, in, I, so I grew up, my parents are Pentecostal pastors. So my parents taught me how to be a buena mujer. Like we didn't even have beer in our house. I remember I was in seventh grade and I opened my friend's fridge and her dad had butt light and I was like, oh, I have to get out of here. These people are bad. <laughs> like that's how my parents raised me. They were like, be a good girl because that's how you marry a good guy and that's how you raise good kids. Like it was like all about being a buena mujer. So I never cursed. When I cursed, I would be like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, like I was that girl in the hood, like, oh my God, no digas eso, right? <laughs> and... Then I realized that that didn't matter. <laughs> and it took like a series of experiences. And it was specifically around racism when I got around white people. And like I remember I, I like walked across, uh, there's bars in front of the graduate programs. And I like went to one of the bars and I was talking to this law student because I thought people are people, right? Like I can talk to anybody. I'm funny. I'm charming. I'm sort of smart sometimes. Like I was like, I could talk to any. I could talk to a wall. So I'm like talking to this white guy because like that's all there is in Nashville. And he's like, yeah, I'm in the law school. And I was like, cool. I'm like, right. My building's right next to you. I'm in the divinity school. And he was like, show me your school ID. I was like, oh, you don't you don't think I'm a good girl. <laughs> you don't think I'm smart. <laughs> you know, like I had that very real like all these years of working so hard. Okay. Um, I also made, when I first got to Nashville, I made a, a group of five girlfriends, and they were all white, because, you know, people are people, I thought. And um, one of them said to me, one of, like, at the very beginning of the semester, she's like, just randomly, she, she was like drinking coffee, and she's like, I would never fight you, because you would kick my ass. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I look at me, I look at you. Mm -hmm. I think I can. And then the second time it happened, I was like, hmm. The third time it happened, it was a party uh, that somebody was hosting. And like, I dressed to the nine, right? Like, I'm like, it's a party. I'm here to be cute. And like, everybody was wearing like a sweatshirt, jeans, and sneakers. I was like, oh, I didn't get the, I didn't get the, I didn't get the memo for this party. But anyways, I was like, I still look cute, right? And I like went to the kitchen. My friends were all hanging there. And when somebody was like, what are you wearing? And one of the other girls was like, shut up. Don't mess with her because she'll kick your ass. <laughs> and I was like, these people, <laughs> you know nothing about me except the color of, like, you don't know where I come from. You just see the color of my skin, and you've made very real assumptions of how I deal with how I, when I'm angry, how I deal with aggression. So I was like, oh. So all these years I spent trying to be a good girl, and it did not matter because <laughs> I'm read a certain way, and I'm being told that I can only be a certain person. And I was like, why? That's why that, the police keep stopping me in Nashville. Got it. <laughs> like, I thought they really were concerned that I didn't have my seatbelt on. So I curse because I got really mad, like I said. And I just started walking around. And I was like, I don't want a good husband. I don't want to be a good girl. I just want to be myself. And if people think I need to use big words for them to think I'm smart enough, then... This is going on the radio, so it's really fun with them dealing with my cursing. <laughs> um, so I'm going to read a few of my pieces. I write about how I grew up, and like you guys know a little bit of how I grew up. So, so I've worn bangs my entire life. So like pavas, I don't know how people call them in different regions, but bangs. It was easy or whatever. I thought it was an easy look for girls with pelo liso. Like I was like... But I also remember very clearly when I was 12 years old, I wanted to get rid of them. I was just like, I want to grow them out. All the, nobody has bangs. I was like, that's for kids. That's little kid stuff. Because I'd always had bawas, right? And I, I like convinced my mom. I was like, 
we're getting, we're getting, we're getting rid of this shit. I'm gonna be an adult now. I, I'm a woman at 12, right? No longer. But then something started happening in school. I started being made fun of by my fellow Latinos in my class. They started calling me India and uh, Pocahontas had just come out like a few years before. So they're like, Pocahontas, but not like in the cute um, Disney princess kind of way. It was like, that's the only princess you look like kind of way. And it was all said with the pent up anger of Latinos with a lot of self-hatred. Because a lot of us have indigenous ancestors. The majority of us do. But God forbid we look it, claim it. I was only 12 years old, and I was taught very, a very clear lesson that day. I look indígena. So that meant that I was ugly. And to be 12 years old and have a very real awareness of the many ways in which your cultura hates you was too real. So of course, all this turned to me fi being 15 in high school and some girl, some other, like again, among the Latinos only. The self-hatred of the brown Latinas was real and you could tell by the time we were 15, 16. And so I remember I bought my first pair of blue contacts uh, like bootleg, some girl was selling them for $20 during lunch. And like, God forbid, I, I became like blind or something. I didn't care. I was like, I was, I didn't eat for like two weeks my lunch so I could like save my money. And I was like, Yesenia, give me my gringa contacts, right? I wanted to do anything to not look like myself to not look like my ancestors. When people tell you that Latinos are not discriminative against each other, it's probably because they're lying to themselves or benefiting from such discrimination. So at 12, I remember the day I, I called my mom from the school phone crying and I said, we're getting my pavas back. We're getting my bangs back. And she's like, no, we don't have money right now. I was like, no, we have to get them. And I was crying on the phone, and she picked me up early from school, and we went to Walmart, <laughs> and she's like, okay. And then she was, like, laughing. She's like, I don't understand what the big deal is. But my mom's light-skinned. I look like my dad. My dad's indígena looking. And so she didn't understand why I was so devastated. But I just wanted... I knew I couldn't get rid of my face. I just wanted to look less India. And so I got bangs. And I had worn bangs till last year, August, I started growing out my bangs. Because at 12 years old, I was taught to hate myself. They taught me that looking indigenous and like our indigenous ancestors meant that you deserve to be made fun of. I have my ancestral brownness scripted on my face and on my body. And I was taught to hate it when I was really young. So all these years, I wore bangs because all I did was try to unlearn that stuff. I'm not married anymore. I married a white guy because I was taught that white people, whiteness, white features were better. And when I started to unlearn all that stuff and I started to say, like, brown is beautiful. I love my eyes. I love my hairy legs. I love, you know, like I was like all these things that I used to want to erase all this skin bleaching and the hair lightening that I try to do on my body hair. And then I was married to this white guy. At the time, I was having these very real realizations. 
So obviously we, we got divorced. Don't get married really fast. I'm just going to tell you now. Just if you leave with any lesson today, don't do that. So I'm 31 now. So it's been over, well, almost two decades since my 12-year-old me was taught very real things about brownness, about cultura, about my brownness. And all I do is write about it and challenge myself to see myself as I fully am. Una nicaragüense con bellos rastros indígenas. I write about this because um, our culture is full of colorism. And so that's the word we use. Um, I would never say like Latinos are racist because racism is still defined under power and we don't have power, especially in this country. And, and I would say in our countries, we don't either with all the corruption, with the U.S. having its hands on all our resources international policies so i don't think we have power at any even when the, all of our government officials in our countries look light-skinned usually there's still no power there's like a imagined power so colorism is that like is how we discriminate against each other and how we are anti-indigenous and anti-black and the only way i can talk about a big topic like this like something that can be like overwhelming to talk about is like I narrow it down to an experience I had. Like um, my mom always tells me, get out the sun. No vayas a la playa, te vas a poner negra. And I know she's not worried about my skin. She's not worried about skin cancer. She's only concerned that I'm getting darker. And I laugh about it now that I'm not living at home. I laugh about it because she just called me a few days ago and she's like, you're going to love this. Because I'm always like, no, I'm going to get darker. I'm beautiful. Like, look at me, you know, like I'm like now, right? Now that I'm older and I can defend myself. And so she called me. She's like, te vas a reír. The doctor told me I have vitamin D deficiency. So she hasn't been going to the sun enough. <laughs> and I was like, es de Dios, right? <laughs> So remember that, like, you'll catch it and you'll notice it different ways. I don't, I didn't notice it until it all came crashing down on me. And then I can name story after story after story after story. The many times I was told, like, mejora la raza, don't go to the sun. Here's this skin bleaching thing that you can use. It was like, so just start noticing things around you. And if you've already noticed it, because I always felt weird. I just didn't know what to say about it. It was like, oh, this is funny this isn't cute and then I like moved on from it uh so I'm a first gen well actually I don't want to read that I'm gonna read this one okay so I have this piece called my mommy and papi do not get me so I'm a first gen and I do a lot of stuff that my parents could never imagine having done and um I think that only has come out in like them thinking I'm really weird and them not understanding me in the slightest. So I wrote a story about it. My mommy and papi do not get me. I don't say it because it makes me mad. I just say it because it's true. I grew up with really religious parents uh, where they controlled everything we consumed, everything we watched. Like they would walk by the TV and I had Sim the Simpsons on. They were like, eso no es de Dios, right? Everything I listened to, if it wasn't Christian music, it was the Satanás, you know? They said very clearly, if it didn't elevate el nombre de Jesucristo, it was basura. Which is fine, but what resulted is that there was nobody in my life and nothing I was being exposed to that told me different ideas. And so whatever they said, I like listened to. When they said, at 14, they said, my mom said, Write a list of all the features you want in a husband and pray for it every day. And if I had been exposed to other things, other books, other people, maybe they would have been like, hey, why don't you write a list about college classes you want to take? <laughs> I 
and pray about it, right? So I did what they wanted almost exclusively. But then I went to grad school and I was given books I had never even dreamt about reading. I was meeting professors who came from similar backgrounds like I did and looked like me and had like PhDs. And I was like, eso podemos hacer nosotros, right? I was asking questions and being taught things about God, about humanity. I was taught about racism. And I was just like, where has all this stuff been all along? And so I actually graduated with my master's. I was getting close to graduation and I got accepted to another graduate program. And I laid in bed crying when I got the acceptance letter, which is really strange because I was so happy when I got into college. I couldn't be stopped from how much I was smiling when I got into graduate school. But here I was with, an, with the potential to get another degree, and I was devastated because I was far away from home, around a lot of racism, and this new university I would have gone to was in a smaller town. The Nash Nashville feels like nada, right? It feels like a little town. And this town doesn't that I would be moving to didn't even have an airport. I was like, I was like, I can't do it. So I called my mommy and I was like, no sé qué hacer. And she's like, pues vente a casa. She said, I can feed you. <laughs> and I was like, free food and a bed. I'm going home. <laughs> so I packed up my stuff. I graduated on a Friday. Saturday at 4 a.m., I was leaving on a U-Haul with my mom and dad back to their house. And I needed to go. I needed to be away from primarily white people. I needed to be a person. And so I realized when I got there that I didn't have health insurance anymore. And I was like, what do I do with all this anxiety? So I Googled, what do you do if you have like anxiety and you don't have health insurance? And there was a lot of things that, the, that Google said, but the main one was exercise. And so I was like, okay. So I started exercising like 30 miles a day. I started biking. And it turns out when you're really cansada and tired as fuck, you don't have time to be anxious. So I was never anxious anymore. But I was biking. I was like on mile 12. And this is just like a probability thing. Like I think like if you're constantly doing this thing, you're bound to like have accidents. So I just was biking and I was like looking to the left and I should have been looking where I was going. And my bike just swerved off the sidewalk and I fell face first with my bike flipping on top of me and my hand is the only thing that kept me from breaking my face. And I was in the street, so I got up really quickly. I got my bike. It was like all adrenaline. I put the chain back on my bike. I checked my phone to see if I had teeth still. And I don't know about you all, but in my house, my dad is el proveedor, so he provides. But my mom is the parent. So I call my mom, obviously. And um, she didn't pick up because she's a Latina mom with a cell phone that doesn't use it. So I was like, okay, this feels like an emergency situation. So I called my dad. And I was like, okay, papi, me caí. I think something's broken. And he's like, pues China, that's his nickname for me. He's like, China, your bike is too big and it doesn't fit in the car. We're just, can you make it home? And I was like, yeah, I'm an independent woman. I got this. <laughs> so I started biking back home and I, my arm was starting to feel really weak. I didn't know it was broken, but I knew something wasn't okay. And I was just like, okay, just get, just get home. It's only 12 miles. 
And my mom calls me in like two minutes. And she's like, ¿A dónde estás? I'm like, oh, here, I'm here. She's like, drop a pin. Te recojo. <laughs> and so here comes my mom. And I don't know about you all's mom. And my mom is like five, two, maybe on a good day. Her biggest form of exercise is making nakatamales. And she has rheumatoid arthritis. And here she is. You know, like um, wealthier people, people with privilege, they usually have like a road bike and a mountain bike and a cruiser. And they have bikes for like every activity you could ever imagine. Well, if you're from the hood, you have one bike and you better make it work for everything. <laughs> so my mom's carrying this bike that's so heavy, we call it the Jeep. She's like putting it in the her little car. She's like with her feet in there. It's not coming in, but she's like, it's fine. And she put me in the car, and I'm just like, thank you. She's holding the bike from while driving back home. We get home. I have pieces of pavement on my lip. My lip is like five times its size now. She, we, she, now I'm being like super dramatic because my mommy's there. I was like, oh, I can't shower. It hurts, right? So she like bathed me. And we go to the emergency room, and I'm like, I am sitting there like, Dios me dio la mamá perfecta para mí. I am just like, this woman was made for me. I was like really being emotional about it. I was like, this is why I'm home now. I deserve this, right? <laughs> and then, so I'm a writer, and my mom gets a notification on her phone because she tries to be a really supportive mommy, and she gets a notification, and it says like, a new article has published. And my mom only speaks Spanish, so she copy and pastes every sentence into Google Translate. And we have a lot of time in this emergency room, so I'm just like, because I know what article published, and it's not, they're not nice articles all the time. I'm not mean, I'm just really honest. And so I wrote about my brother. I said, it's called hermano, and I said the first sentence, I knew after the first sentence I was done. The first sentence read, the first emotionally abusive relationship I was ever in was with my older brother. And then I like continue, right? And I just hear my mom, like, you know, the click of the phone. She puts it down. And she turns to me and she's like, I think you're just writing for likes now. And I was like, this is not the woman who picked me up from the pavement. <laughs> Right? Like, I'm like, I don't know you. So my mommy and papi do not get me. And I don't say it out of anger. I just say it because it's true. I grew up really religious, and they controlled everything we did, everything we listened to, who our friends were. I didn't have novios. I had amigos. And I did what they wanted. I listened to everything they said. But when I, become, when I started to become more aware and started to ask real questions, like, why can't I get more tan? Or why does my brother never clean and I'm always cleaning? Then I was like this weird person. And they were really confused by me and they looked at me like an alien. But I knew they loved me still. So they don't get me. And some days I feel really, really, really alone because I would do anything, anything for them to say that they're really proud of me. But at least they say that they love me. And for now, I don't know if forever, but for now, I have to be okay with that. So I wrote this piece um, because I got invited to Obama's White House. I have to say it like that. It's like a, a statement. I got invited to Obama's White House in the fall. And I was like, this is the day they're going to be proud of me. Because you keep thinking, like I kept thinking like, okay, because they don't get what I'm doing. That's why they're not proud, right? But like I was like, when I get my Nobel Peace Prize, they're going to be super proud. Like I was like, right? Like those are my thoughts. Like 
that's undeniable, right? <laughs> so I got invited to Obama's White House, and I was like, this feels pretty undeniable. And I texted my parents. I was like, and I was like, I was going to lie about it, right? Because it was like the Hispanic caucus or something invited me. But I was like, Obama me invitó a la Casa Blanca. <laughs> and I was like, I I'm just going to wait now. I just like sat there in the chair looking at my phone like, mm-hmm. And they left me on red. <laughs> and my dad called me like maybe two hours later. And I'm like, oh, maybe he just like had time. He was busy. And he's like, Gina, I need you to blah, blah, blah. He needed me to translate something. And I was like, and then we hung up. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Is this real? <laughs> So I called my sister because my little sister and I are like best friends. And I called her and I was like, those people, right? Like I'm not a perfect human being. I get mad at them. I respect them most of the time, but sometimes I'm like, muerete. So I was like, those people, they don't love me. They don't care about me. Because, <laughs> okay, here's the thing. My brother was teacher of the year in 2007 and not of the county, he was teacher of the year at his middle school. And my mom tells everyone, like, he invented the education system in Miami. So I'm just like, I just, I kind of want a third of that pride, like, pride. So I'm, like, mad at my sister. She's like, Daddy has been telling everybody. She's like, he went to the pulpit, asked everyone to pray for you. He's like, mi Priscilita va a la Casa Blanca, right? And I'm just like, they can't even pick up a phone and tell me that they're proud of me, but they can tell everybody else. They'll call me and be like, where are my grandkids? But not, okay. So I feel like I'm my parents' worst nightmare. And I feel like I can't be alone in this. So I write, like, things that happen like that. So I wrote this piece because um, I was asked to write it. I wrote this piece called Dear Woke Brown Girl. And then I met this um, um, Latina, and she's like, I just have a niece. Can you write something like that for young people? And I was like, okay. And then I sat for, like, six months in front of my computer, and I was like, that's a lot of pressure, and I don't have kids, so I don't know if I can do that. But then I was like, okay, what would you like for somebody have to have told you? As somebody who had nobody telling them anything differently, what would you have liked? So this is it. It's an open letter to young brown girls everywhere. Dear brown girl, you see everything. You notice people around you growing and changing. You're perceptive. Keep that. Trust your instincts. This world will tell you that feelings are not real, that logic is superior, but know that those feelings are generationally taught. You've inherited unojo and an instinct for things that probably comes from your mommy and tias, from your hermana, your abuelas. They are smart. Do not throw away their strength, their knowledge, their superhuman ability to love people who they should not love sometimes. The world is in the palm of your hands. And older people who have believed that lie that only white people are valuable will try to cut you down and keep you small. But you come from ancestors who survived genocide. They tried to kill us, and we're here because we've survived that. Do not let them fool you into thinking you are not capable. I would probably tell young me to run, to laugh, to play, to be, to be as carefree as possible. It will make everyone around you wonder how a brown girl can be this carefree 
in a world that wants to see you fall. Because you deserve everything under the sun. The sun is in the henna. Didn't anybody ever teach you that? Make friends. Later, these people are going to become your lifeline. They're the people in your group chats. Find other carefree brown girls to build with, laugh with, and most importantly, run with, because this world will want to drown you. So learn to run away and into safe and warm embraces. I would probably tell me to read more. Read on my own. Because school will not save you. School systems are meant to indoctrinate you. Teaching you a history that puts the government in a positive light. A history that negates Aslan. A history that pretends that the USA is not to blame for all the things happening around the world. Do, don't buy into it. Read on your own. Go to the library. Ask questions. Ask that tia malcriada. She probably has book recommendations. You have to learn fast that your community is your lifeline, that your familia is there to help you. Ask brown folks. Ask your older, or your older primo, the one in college, what he's reading. Because you take tests in school and they tell you what your reading comprehension level is, but you get to say what your reading comprehension level is. I didn't, when I got to grad school, all the books I was given were hard. So I read it out loud. I would walk reading them because sometimes concentrating made me want to fall asleep. So I'd start walking with them and I would read them again and I read it five times and then I was like, oh. And then I realized by my last year, I could read it once and then I got it. Your brain is so powerful. You just have to let the lies about you slide off your back and write back to them. Listen to your elders. Really listen. They know a lot. We seem boring. I mean, I guess I'm an elder now because I'm 31, but... Yeah, I guess we seem boring and kind of not cool anymore, but we have like a lot of insights. But also know that we're learning also. Like I'm not done learning. And I can make a lot of mistakes and say a lot of things that you're like, nah, that doesn't sound right. And that's cool too. But don't let anyone clip your wings you're going to need those wings to fly in the, into the most inaccessible spaces, spaces that do not want people like you. Your wings are what, are what makes you different and bold. I tell people don't learn to be humble. Humility is a lie. Be kind to people, build people up, treat people how you want to be treated. But humility is extraordinarily adopted and practiced by women and people of color. Men, white people get to be like, I did that, put my name on that, I invented that disease, I invented that solution. Even when it was indigenous, like indigenous people were doing it, we didn't put our name on it. <laughs> Even if our medi the medicine, like the foundation for modern medicine is like rooted in African and indigenous like stuff we were already doing but our names aren't on it white people love their name on it and then we keep being humble let's stop doing that do not let anyone tell you that the color of your skin is anything but beautiful 
The skin is traced back to some of the most powerful civilizations that this world has ever seen. People who do not know will try to make you hate the color of your skin. So remind them that you are a descendant of American Indians whose power and memory must be upheld. Remind people because they seem to have forgotten. And most importantly, I think I would have told young me to dance. This journey is hard. We don't have it easy. There's more obstacles in front of us, generational poverty, food deserts that we're living in, and the list can go on. Being brown is in the world that prefers whiteness, and being female in a world that prefers men means you have the cards stacked against you, so learn to dance all their bad intentions away. Dance till you no longer can feel them. Dance your way towards the revolution. Your sisters have been waiting for you. <coughs> Patiently waiting an older brown girl. So I think I'll end it on that. Um, I want to encourage you all and want to keep encouraging and want you to leave this room thinking, I too can write, and I'm the only one that can tell my story. You change the narrative and you can change the world. Trump supporters, Trump himself, have been saying what they think about our communities, but we're the only ones that can actually say what our communities are like, what our experiences are about. So write it all down. Thank you for coming. Um, I think we're going to have a Q&A question, a Q&A situation, but there's a mic that's going to be going, or that you have to come up here and ask them. I don't know if you guys are shy with questions, but you can ask anything. I won't have an answer. Um, my name is Victoria Martinez, and I'm an artist and educator from Chicago. I'm from Pilsen. Um, I'm just curious to know, there's often dialogue um, with writers or within the Latino community about um, colorism. Um, and often with like lighter Latinas or Latinos like have this privilege versus others that are darker. Um, but oftentimes like there's that audience and I feel like there's some sort of miscommunication but also um, kind of a feeling like although the colors might be different, um, in other ways they're, they're still trying to, to fight. They're, they're, they're still trying to work things out um, within themselves, but also within the Mexican or like the Latino or Latina community by doing things like maybe researching or traveling to conserve and protect something like textiles. Um, so I'm just curious, since you write a lot about, um, I guess, miscommunication or privileges that others um, have, within their color. What do you have to say about people who might be, you know, might be lighter but are still um, trying to conserve culture? Like, does that, is that, does that not qualify for you? Or, or like, what would you say to those people who are actually doing something to, to want to keep the culture alive? Yeah. Well, I don't really write about that as much. I think, um, you could still be like a well-meaning, amazing Latino who still um, gets the benefits of white supremacy, right? And uh, that doesn't, one doesn't negate the other, right? And so when I write about, I'm writing about like what it means to not get those benefits. And like, so it's first person narratives about like growing up with that. But I, yeah, I mean, it's like, um, so I talk about white people, like I'll just say the phrase white people, right? And then like, some white person will be like, but I'm not like that. I'm nice. What about, can, can am I? And I'm like, no. <laughs> like, I can still talk about white people, and it doesn't have to include you. Like, and it doesn't mean you're not a good ally or good allies don't exist. It's just, like, white supremacy is real, and there's people who benefit from it. And so, yeah. 
I feel like uh, naming those things are very important. And I think it's up to people who are maintaining cultura and who are upholding it and trying to, for them to be like, this is what I'm doing and like keep doing that work. But it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't make anyone less Latino. I've write, written about that too. Um, and it doesn't make anybody incapable of doing good work. It's just, it's all nuanced. So it's part of the nuances. <laughs> um, we have several questions from our our online um, audience. Um, the first one from A. E. Silva. Has your relationship with your parents changed negatively or positively once um, you became woke? And oh yes, it has changed a lot. Um, I don't really have a relationship with my dad anymore. My mom is my best friend. And um, it started because when I got divorced, uh, it started from an awful place. I told her, well, I'm leaving my husband, whatever. And she was like, es porque lees mucho. And I was like, so here you are, here I was, sleeping on an inflatable bed in a garage. And my mom's blaming me for my divorce with this white man, like this white angel could possibly not do anything wrong. It had to be me. So I hung up the phone and I didn't talk to my mom for months. And I changed my number. She didn't know where I was living. I blocked her on all social media accounts. And um, when we finally spoke again, she was like, I'm sorry. You are your own person. You make your mistakes and you're living the worst of that. And then you you're the one picking yourself up and I just need to support you along the way. And so um, when I got divorced, so I was like a good girl, right? And when I got divorced, I was like, well, I'm going to be a h now because <laughs> we're too often told women can't be sexual. But God forbid, like, how about I want to be? And how about I don't want, I just got out of a marriage. How about I don't want a boyfriend? How about I just want casual situations? And it's my body and my choice to do that safely. And so I did, and I would, like, drop a pin and be like, Mom, I'm in this hotel. I just met this guy. If I don't come out in 30 minutes, can you call the cops? That's the kind of friendship we began to develop because my mom was able to see me as a, as a whole person that was capable of taking care of herself but also needed, like, my mommy to be there. So my mom and I are best friends, but that's taken a lot of work, and it took an awful situation for us to get there. And I guess there's a lot of questions, but we're going to get with <laughs> one more. Um, cool. This is from Jasmine Luna. It says, thank you for sharing your stories. You have no idea what they have done for me and my friends. Your stories got me through my depression that I was caused by the trauma. Oh, one more. Hold on. I experienced at the primarily white college I attended. Because of my experiences with racism, sexism, sexism in college, I have been really afraid of writing and sharing my stories. Do you ever get scared or discouraged? And if so, how do you overcome that? This is a bad question because I have the worst answer for like a group of young kids. <laughs> when you have to talk about like um, how your dad loved you until you had an opinion, those are hard things to talk about. And so I tell people I write tipsy and I never reread because it hurts and to be that vulnerable still takes a lot of effort and I don't read comments because I get like mad like people are like start defending or being like that's not my story or whatever and I'm like stop <laughs> I cannot so I stopped reading comments a long time ago because those are really personal stories and it takes a lot to put it out in the world and so that's why editors are there and that's why I only write in small spurs and I write it, it'll be like something I'm feeling and something heavy and I'll write it in five minutes and never look at it ever again. So it, it isn't easy and it hasn't gotten easier and hopefully, hopefully it will. <laughs> I think that's it with the online question. <laughs> Does anybody want to say, do we say goodbye? Is anybody saying, do I say goodbye? Oh, okay. Adios. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Thank you.
You listen to Prisca Lorcas from Latina Rebels blog. A talk on the importance and power of storytelling, writing, and using your voice. Recorded live on March 15, 2017 at the Port Ministries. As part of Papa View Radio at Richard's Career Academy and Casa Program. Hello, it's me. I haven't heard from you in a while. I hope it's because you're listening and enjoying our amazing, outstanding, terrific, wonderful, inspiring, delightful, funny, breathtaking, amazing, astonishing, highly amazing production. If not, you should listen to our radio show, What's Up, again. In the meantime, we'll be working on the next one here in Lumpin' Radio. So stay tuned to our next amazing, outstanding, terrific, wonderful, inspiring, delightful, funny, breathtaking, astonishing, highly amazing broadcast. I hope that you are informed about the awesome parts of life and that you will have a splendid day. Don't forget to listen to us on SoundCloud at Yolokali, on social media like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Tumblr at Yolokali, or visit at yolokaliartsreach.org for more. We are the robots. We are the robots.